Rosen. I am sitting here at long last in dining room studios with Greg Barrett, whom I have been wanting to have on the show for a long time, and he's finally here. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Greg I've wanted to be on the show for a long time. Well, it's all working out. Yes, it's, it's real this is <laughs> it's really, really our together. year. Yeah, it really is <laughs> Comedian. This is our year. It really is. Author, father, talk mm-hmm. show host, musician, podcaster, a true multi hyphenate. Yeah. And you were multi hyphening. Back before uh, that was like the thing to do. Yeah, I think I, I, I was at the I was a part of the early wave of multi hypheners. I was I was there <laughs> with like the charge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was like you know the group of guys that I moved down here with, like Patton Oswalt and Brian Posehn. You know, people that like all those guys like wrote and did comic books and mm-hmm. you know like everybody kind of multi hyphen because um, you know you. Nobody thought they were talented enough to just do the one thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to talk to you about that because um, I like, I think all women read he's just not that into you. And it was a huge kind of, um, it was a huge deal in my life. A couple of my girlfriends, it was when I was living in New York, a couple of my friends in California um, told me about it. And it had like opened their eyes. And then, and I realize I sound like, I, like I'm like a Sex in the City plot right now. It's so <laughs> girly. Um, it opened their eyes and then I read it and it was really a, um, a sort of a seminal book for me just in terms of learning how to date and, and how to think of all that. And I was going to tell you this, except I just, which I just did, but I just listened to you on um, Professor Blastoff. Yeah. And so now I know that you, if it's fair to say, sort of have mixed feelings about the book. Uh, I've made my peace with it for sure, but okay. I definitely for a long, there was a time period where it was the, it became like the bane of my existence. Right. Like an albatross. Yeah. Only because before I, before the book, I was just on my way to being a stand up comic, which is just what I wanted to do. I mean, I was like, you know, I had one Comedy Central special and I'd done Letterman and Conan and that I think the Tonight, I, don't, I hadn't done the Tonight Show yet, but like I was on a trajectory. Mm-hmm. And happy with it. And then like, and then I was working on Sex in the City as a consultant. And like, that was a cool job. I thought, oh, I will be able to do that and work on shows and just pitch jokes. And, and, uh, and then the book just changed the whole complexion of my career. And I think because it was before the internet, um, people either just decided you were one thing or the other. You couldn't kind of multi-hyphen and have people accept it because you didn't have your own Wikipedia page right. and your own Twitter page and your own blog and your own way of explaining <laughs> yourself to people. And so then I just became the relationship guy, which was not what I had planned, even mm-hmm. though I was grateful to have written the book. And then there was a lot expected that, that people just expected that's what I would be or do. And I didn't want to stop doing stand up. So I was, it was sort of worked at cross purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I, um, so yeah, I get, and then by the time the movie came out, I had like a nervous breakdown on stage. That's what I talk about on Professor Blastoff. <laughs> but I, um, uh, but I'm grateful for the book and I like it and I'm very proud of it. And I'm proud of the other books that we've written since. And I, um, and I wouldn't have a lot of the things I have in my life because of that book. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think it's a good book, but, uh, but for a while when I wasn't able to do stand up, I was angry. 
You know? Right. And you weren't able to do for, for who haven't listened. Everyone should just go listen to you on Professor Blastoff. It's yeah. Like, I mean, basically like background listening for this episode. Yeah. Basically what happened was, was that once the book became popular, the only one people that came out to see me do stand up were women who assumed it would be like a Ted talk about <laughs> relationships, like a kind of funny. And I don't. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing is I didn't have a one relationship joke in my entire act. They just wanted to like commune with the book. They did. They wanted to. Right. And that is not um, that like to draw that conclusion that 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 that's what would happen if you came and see me is makes 100 percent sense. I just didn't have that to deliver. I wanted to talk about fingering my dog. (laughs) So or whatever I was on about that week. Also romantic. Yes. Yes. And there's a way to do that, too. (laughs) But um, um, uh, so I so it was difficult. And then. The girls would come to the show and they'd like it okay. Most of them just wanted to wait to get their book signed. And then they wouldn't come back. And so then I wasn't building anything and mm-hmm. I was really frustrated, you know, like, and I couldn't get um, writing jobs that weren't relationship oriented. I couldn't get acting jobs unless they were sort of, and, but I, I don't act anyway, but like it just, everything had to be relationships. And I was right. like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, um, uh, I'm there's more to me just like anybody would say mm-hmm. you know just like the you know I'm I'm hardly Henry Winkler but it's like you know, <laughs> there's a point you know where he's like had to have gone I'm not just the Fonz I can do other things it's interesting though I think I think the way in terms of the way the media sees people if you are a comedian oftentimes like you are just a comedian. And if you're a relationship person, you're just a relationship person. And I think in particular, those two things, like when the media deems you a something expert, like I know of someone who's a former cop, body language expert, but also a comedian. And I've always thought, how does that, how does that work? Right. Like, cause it sounds like you're either not that funny or not that good at body language. Right. <laughs> right. It's hard for my right. brain to, to go to, to hold both of those. And I think that especially with comedians, it's hard for people to think of like a comedian as also an expert in something. I'm just trying to think like, could someone be a mechanic, but also a surfer? Yes. There's, yeah, there totally. are other two things that someone can hold in their head, but it's like right. comedian. You're supposed to be like all you. You're supposed to be funny 100 percent of the time. Well, and that's also the antithesis of being an expert. You know what I mean? Like a comedian is like you know it's a it's the you know you're not you're 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 a clown. You're not. How why do right. you get to decide whether my boyfriend likes me a lot? Which I also did get from people, and I and I would say, well, I don't get to decide. You get to decide. I don't care. The <laughs> the, the I think the reason the book connected is it's really simple. It's written in a, a you know. Not in a hilarious manner, but in a fun way. Yeah, it's meant to be funny and it's meant to be insightful and kind. And um, um, so it's not a disconnect from who I am as a person. Right. But people genuinely don't look beyond the labels that they put on you and they don't go past that. You know, Mm -hmm. most people that don't like the book didn't read one page of it, have zero idea of what it's like, because when they explain it back to you, you go, well, that's not the book. You didn't read it. Right. Which is fine. So for listeners who are maybe... When did it come out? 2004. Okay. So, listener... Yeah, I have some listeners who might be young enough that they don't know about the book. Sure. Uh, it was a very liberating book, even though the, me- cause the message of the book was, hey, maybe this guy that you're pining over and whose words you're trying to interpret and driving yourself nuts over, maybe he doesn't like you. But it was crazy in that the message that maybe he doesn't like you was so liberating. Right. Because it's like, oh, I don't have to worry about this anymore. If if the right guy comes along and he likes me, he'll make it clear. 
Yes. I don't have to spend all my time being a lunatic anymore. Right. Right. You don't have I to. I mean, that's what I got from No, it. but that's what, I mean, it's also that thing of like, you don't, you don't have to discern whether or not you were hired for a job. You either were or you weren't. Not <laughs> right. that it's a job, but you know what I mean? Like there's obvious social cues and real cues that human beings give you to let you know. And we tend to, for some reason with relationships, throw all those out and go, well, maybe they're shy or they might've been super busy that week. Or we maybe give he people likes a lot me so much he's scared, which I don't think yeah, ever yeah, yeah. happens. That's rare. <laughs> that's just I don't buy it you know and and if he is you have to ask yourself well if that's a, like is that a guy you want to spend the rest of your life with trying to pull it out of him right like you know there are obvious reasons why some people can't connect and that doesn't mean that people aren't shy or that they have problems we ne- we never said that but you can just tell like your instincts your insides will tell you whether somebody likes you or not you know most of the time you're just having an argument with yourself basically I think people do what they want to do. So if someone's not pursuing you and not acting like they're interested in you, even if on some unconscious level they like you so much they're scared, in their conscious mind, they're not that into you. No, 100%. And why do you want to be with that person? 100%. Or they're giving you the, I like this part. I like it when we, I like when I get drunk and we make out (laughs) and then you come over. Like, I like that part. And then right. the rest of it, I don't like. And it's like, again, you have to ask yourself, do, are these the things I want? Do I want that, that part of it? You know, am I happy with just getting drunk late night texts? And uh, I think the hope and the hope is always it'll turn into more. Right. Which just it really rarely does. Again, people will always want to show you, no, my friend. I go, yes, I know. Yes, your friend. There's a <laughs> there's always an exception to the rule. But why don't you not pretend you're the exception to the rule? That works great with everything. That way you continue looking, you continue moving on and you're not in the same place. You know, it's mm-hmm. like uh, I don't just assume I'm going to be Bill Burr, like I'm going to be the next old guy that breaks or the next old, you know, I'm the guy that is going to have this long career. So, but I just keep doing stand up in hopes that something cool happens. And I also like it enough and I'm, and I, it, it's enough already, but my pursuit of it is not to get something out of it, but to like, you know, continue doing it. And just that in and of itself makes me more attractive in show business than it does someone who's so needy. And is so wanting of something that you almost shut them down whether you want to or not. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we see these people all the time. It's Unless they're the Jenners. And, you know, there's a, again, an exception to every rule. Right. It's funny you say this because I feel like this, this just came up on a recent podcast. And it's something that I think about all the time. That I tend to come to think if you want something so bad, you're going to push it away. Mm-hmm. And neediness and desperation is like a universal repellent. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's also been so much in culture that says, whatever you want, just announce it to the universe and just go for it. And to me, those ideas are a little bit uh, contradictory. Well, I mean, the, that you can manifest something from a collage uh, that you've made about the thing that you want is tough. Usually you can manifest something by doing a bunch of open mics and not just looking at a picture of Richard Pryor every day. <laughs> like usually it has to do with some work and sometimes those right. two things can come together. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being specific and writing it down or putting it in a journal or doing, you know what I mean? Like I'm weird in that I would consider myself to be an agnostic, but I have a Bible quote on my arm and I wear a St. Christopher and a rosary around just because I you know that's who I am I'm a contradiction as soon as I start believing in something then I start thinking I'm going to get something or I'm going to receive or or the world's going to pay me back and I don't want to so I don't genuinely believe 
but I'm prepared just in case. You know what I mean? And I like to act as it. I like to I like to act out on the golden rule and hope that that's that's my point for being here is to like do good for other people. And you know, when I do that, usually good things happen to me. What is the quote? Uh, the quote is uh, "Faith without works is dead." Mm. So you know, it's just about being in the. It's being in the solution instead of you know talking about it or you know. Do you have a tendency to? talk more than do like do you do you are you i understand that you want to remind yourself that you need to be doing but is that something that do you feel that you have a tendency to not no well i think in early in the early days yes i think i think when i was younger i talked a way a, a whole lot more and drank a whole lot more mm-hmm. uh, uh but i did talk a whole lot more about what i was going to do now i would say i'm pretty consistent i pretty much do i mean i'm i'm busy most of the time like the things i think about doing I mean, part of it is, you know, um, uh, that you get older and you realize there's not much time. Uh, part of it is you realize the equation is work is the only thing that makes that happen, you mm-hmm. know, um, and taking risks and putting yourself out there. And, you know, um, I don't want to put the, I don't want to take the show to a downer, but you know, I like to. So okay, great. Yeah. Perfect. Well, you'll love this. Last uh, Easter, I was diagnosed with cancer. And um, when I was diagnosed in Australia, which I was on tour, um, and I had stomach aches and I went into the emergency room and they did a scan and they found tumors. The second the guy said, you have a cluster of tumors and they could be cancer. Mm-hmm. My first response was, well, I've had a good life. And he was like, well, we're not picking out headstones, mate. Like you're not, we're, you're not, we're just saying you, you have, can- you could have cancer. But my response was, oh, I've enjoyed my life. Like I went for what I wanted to go for. I've done a mm-hmm. lot of really cool things. I've done a lot of stupid things. I've made a lot of mistakes. I, I've certainly made some people unhappy, but I think more there's more in the good than in the bad. I love my daughters. I love my wife. I don't want to leave them, but my daughters would be in fine hands if they were with just their mom. So like I felt like, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've spent a life in pursuit of the things that were important to me and that I felt like I should do want to do. If you had been diagnosed five years before, would you have had the same reaction? I don't know, because up until that moment, I didn't even know I'd have that reaction. I was like, you know, I think I was scared. And then mm-hmm. when I then when I was told, I was like, hey, you know, fair enough. I went on Oprah once, you know, I've played music like I've done a lot of cool things. Well, I, more than once, let's be honest, four times. Um, <laughs> I was going to say I was on a few times. But yeah. the, the point being, like, those actually aren't the things you think about. I think about the fact that my kids are both really nice people that I had a nice relationship with both my parents, you know, just like. That kind of stuff. I, you know, I did stand up, you know, and I, and I played music, you know, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't not try. Can we talk about the cancer? Yeah. A bit? Cause I'm curious. Yeah. Um, so you were in Australia and you felt stomach aches. I, before I left, I went to the doctor and said, I have some kind of pain in my stomach and it feels like gas, but there's no, no gas. And so, um, he took a, did a blood test and did a workup and all that stuff. And I said, well, there's nothing wrong with you. Like your blood's everything, your vitals, everything's good. Uh, so I assume it's some sort of acid reflux situation. Mm-hmm. So they gave me a Nexium and sent me to Australia. And I even called right before I left and I said, I don't think the Nexium's working. And, uh, he prescribed some other medicine. And then on a scale of one to 10, how intense was this pain? Would you say? So when I left, it was like at about a three. Mm-hmm. You know, like tolerable and infrequent. Um, and then within like the first two weeks of being in Australia, it went to 
constant and and uh, and the worst pain I've ever felt. Wow! Just just like like go to the emergency room, and then when I got the emergency room, they're like, just get him in a room. Don't even worry about like let's not do paperwork. Let's just get him in a room. Um, and they gave me some diluted, and or they gave me like they gave me two rounds of morphine, and that didn't do anything. And they gave me some diluted, and then finally, you know, I went out. And um, for someone uh, who's sober, was that? disconcerting at all or were you just like i no. want to be out of the pain yeah i didn't care yeah i didn't care i mean i wasn't you know it to me with with that kind of stuff it's motives right it's like why are you taking it and you know for me it was like yeah no, I, I this is legit and um uh and then you know and then when i found out i was surprised as you would be because we you know my we don't have a my mom had lung cancer but she fairly gave it to herself mm-hmm. so we didn't have a history of cancer so i was surprised did they do a biopsy is that how they could tell well they didn't do it there they said you have to go home mm-hmm. and i was so high i was like back to my apartment and they were like <laughs> no to america you have to take your cancer to america so where you can pay for it <laughs> and uh so i got on an airplane they gave me a box of oxycontin and nice. sent me to, to sent me to uh, home, and I got literally my wife picked me up at the airport, and we drove straight to Cedars, and then I was in surgery, mm-hmm. and they cut me open, and it turned out to be non-Hodgkin's B-cell lymphoma, and uh, which, which is one of the treated more treatable uh, cancers. What is that a cancer of? Mine was in my intestine, mm-hmm. so it's in the lymph system in the, the intestines. Okay, and uh, and um, I did six rounds of chemo, and that was that. So. Um, uh, and it's been four months, I guess, since, since four and a half months. And I went to the doctor and had a checkup and so, you know, knock wood, still cancer free and I'll go every three months and, and we'll just see what happens. Um, how, how was the chemo? You know, it's not a party. <laughs> it's not fun. So it's what a, we've heard is all is wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. It's, um, uh, you can live through it. You can. It's hard. It's really difficult. Like there's weird things that are hard about it. Mm-hmm. The way you smell, the way, um, like the way food tastes like they have enough anti-nausea drugs, but you just feel it's hard to explain. It's like a weird flu that you have for months. Right. Um, you know, I got up and did stand up at some point, you know, I did a couple shows. Um, but you really start to get weak and you lose your, you lose all of your, like all of your hair, like all of it. Like that's like, I understand the Brazilian now. <laughs> Like you've never felt clean before like that, dude. Like you're like, oh my God, I had no idea. It's like, no, you have no idea. You feel really clean. Um, I've heard there's like sort of weird things you can't expect ahead of time about having no hair. Like I know someone who went through chemo who was saying that just her nose was running all the time because she had no hair in her nose. Yeah. And then you have, you lose your eyelashes and your eyebrows. That's the part where you look kind of sinister and strange, you know, <laughs> like the bald head. I mean, I, sh- I shaved my head a lot and worn a lot of Mohawks and that kind of stuff. So I didn't really like that part didn't bother me too much, but the eyebrows and eyelashes, because I look like this dude, Eddie Bryce, who sat behind me in high school and used to pull his eyelashes out and put them in his textbooks. <laughs> yeah. And just smile at you and you caught him. <laughs> he was really a mess. Uh, I don't think he's with us anymore, but, uh, anyway, yeah. So, um, um, and I was in lethargy. You're just super, super, mm-hmm. super, super tired, but not in your brain. Only your, only your body is like, uh, but like I wrote a ton, you know, I wrote a ton. I, I, because you know, my, my, um, I wasn't, I didn't feel sleepy. I just felt mm-hmm. weak. Were you scared? No, no. I wasn't scared the whole time. I'm still not scared. People are like, are you afraid it's going to come back? I go, every day is a bonus. If it comes back, it comes back. I mean, I have something, something's going to make me leave. Mm-hmm. Um, I was scared for my, 
girls the way they felt like i that's that upset me or like or how um hard my wife's life's been you know like how difficult some of this has been for her because Mm -hmm. um you know it's harder on your mate because you know you're you're like a corpse that has juice like you just lay there and everyone has to do stuff for you so you're just sort of you know (laughs) eating you know eating pot candy and watching netflix like there's not a whole lot you're there's not a whole lot you can do um and uh so uh i felt sad for other people um but that was it really Mm -hmm. and also i just was like everyone was super positive about it so i'm like i think i'll get through this and my wife was like it's just gonna be a blip you know we're gonna be all right and so we just went with that everyone with that attitude were you angry at all because i think my fantasy is that if i were I'm not even a superstitious person, but I'm like afraid to say this out loud. I'm going to say it anyway, though. My fantasy is that if I were diagnosed with something, you know, akin to what we're talking about, it would give me a, a this new lease on like on appreciating life. But I know that I would actually be super fucking angry that I have to go through it. I wasn't angry at all. I just laid into it, let it happen. And I did have a like I felt like that's exactly what happened. Like all of a sudden, every fight I've ever had with anybody uh, including the fight we were talking about beforehand was just like stupid and nothing that I thought mattered mattered at all. I didn't care about like, like it's nice that I've, I wrote a hit book. It's mm-hmm. nice that I've been on television. It's nice that I got to play music with Nora Jones at the, you know, back in New York. Like I've done some things that like, I can't believe if I was a little kid and you told me those things would have happened. You know what I mean? Like, but that isn't what you think about. You think about like how much more time, you, like you wish you'd spent more time with people mm-hmm. you wish you'd had more dinner parties you wish you'd spent more like paying more time paying attention just like stand like standing in line at the dmv like you know get off your phone you know what i mean <laughs> like truly like you feel like oh my god I, I trees you know like and and uh and i love my dogs my three dogs stayed by my bedside the entire time and how much i love animals like I really was like in a good place and i called there were certain friends that i i fixed a couple of friendships that i was like you know, I know we were not talking because of that script thing and God, just stop. let's just stop. This is ridiculous. I think you're great. I've loved you always. So let's just stop. So I did really appreciate things. I wasn't too angry about it, mm-hmm. you know, but I have a different life than other people. So I don't know. Some people might feel like, really, this life and now this, <laughs> you know. Um. So you, this is Easter. So how many months has it been now that you've been in remission and finished with chemo. So about four and a half months. Four and a half months. Yeah. And so where are you with everything now? Has has pettiness crept back in or have you been able to maintain? No, I've been able to maintain it. And the other thing is like my manage, my my agents were like really good at getting me work because I wrote them and said, look, I'm, you know, financially, I mean, I would say the biggest drawback was what it did to us financially because the amount of work that I had to cancel mm-hmm. because the tour I had to cancel because of um, how much we were insured like it, it, we took a bad hit. So I asked my agents to get me as much work as possible. And then I've been working a ton and like I, and my work is probably better than it's ever. Maybe it's the best it's ever been. Like I've just like really enjoyed going on the road and I really like being around other people and I really like other comics again. I'm not, my jealousies are gone. My you know, pettiness is gone. And, um, and it seems to be working for me in that it seems like the more work I get, the more work I get. Mm-hmm. You know, suddenly people are inviting me to do things and I don't know, you know. 
Uh, and it might be that they feel sorry for me. I'll take it. I don't care. <laughs> I joked when it first happened because I'm friends with Tig. And I said, um, I also uh, had cancer. Not not three TV specials cancer, but still, <laughs> the guy down the street gave me a free coffee. So I get it, Tig. You know, I understand <laughs> the warmth, you know, of an industry that really, really steps in to help you out. <laughs> um, so many questions about so much stuff. But let's go back to the beginning you grew up in San Francisco? Yeah, I grew up in my dad. Uh, uh, my mom and, and dad were um, lived in San Francisco. My dad worked in TV. Mm. And I was born and raised there until 1973. And then we bought a house in Marin, which was the bedroom community of the city. Uh, and then my dad quit television and bought a couple radio stations. And, what uh, had he done in television? He started as a cameraman, moved to TV director, and then ran, was the general manager. Okay. So it was like those days when you could really kind of work your way up in, in the world. And um, and then he hated it. He didn't like the politics, so he quit. So then he bought a couple of radio stations. Mm -hmm. And this is when you were still pretty young? So by the time he had radio stations, I was in high school. So And, um, and uh, I would work for the stations during the summer um, and uh, like doing the midnight shift at the rock and roll station, which was in Coos Bay. He had a country station in Bend, but I didn't spend any time there. And, um, um, yeah. And so, and I played sports in high school and I was horrible at them, <laughs> hated them. Um, and then I got an Aerosmith record and went, what am I doing with my life? Which like, one? I, all of them. Cause they had them at the radio station, but I was, but I, I was obsessed with the picture of Steven Tyler on the back of the rocks album cover. Cause he looks so much like a lady. And I was like weirdly attracted to, you know, for a straight guy. But I was like, there was just something about him that I found so, you know, because there just weren't dudes like that in my mm -hmm. high school. And so like Wait. to me, it was like a whole, oh, wow, you can be a guy and be like this too. You don't have to just be an athlete. I was just, just very narrow minded. Was your high school very athletic? No, not. I mean, we live, grew up in Marin. So, I mean, you know, not really. But 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 that era. Yeah. You know, when I was in college, I mean, high school was in from 78 to 81. So, you know, boys played sports. That's just what they did. And then everyone else was a weirdo, even mm -hmm. the guys that had guitars. You do know, it was a different time. Do you have siblings? I have a sister who's younger. Yeah, mm -hmm. three years younger. So were you a, like, what kind of kid were you? Um, pretty happy, pretty funny. And um, uh, my, my parents were both... Um, like I like to say that I grew up in a madman household. Like my parents were very social and very cool. And that was the exact right period, time period. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, um, um, heavy drinkers and heavy partiers and their friends were partiers and they were in, you know, they were in show business kind of, and they went out a lot and, you know, um, uh, there was a lot of inappropriate after hours partying at our house. Not inappropriate, but like Mad Men, you know, it was before parents were the way they are now. Like they're mm -hmm. just different. So I grew up around that. My parents loved comedy. Like they would go to the city all the time and see Phyllis Diller and, you know, Newhart and Cosby and all that kind of stuff. And, um, uh, but I was more into music. So that was like my thing. When did you start playing? I started playing at like 18. Um, and that was right around when punk started and mm -hmm. I was like, cause I didn't, I had just about the same amount of skills as I did as an athlete, but I could, <laughs> but I could play punk and I like wearing outfits, mm -hmm. it's very telling. And, um, um, so yeah, so I had a little punk band called blood clot and the strokes when I was in co high school and I had a couple bands in college and you know, so, and then when I was in college, I got in the theater department and that's when I started to head towards comedy. Mm -hmm. Uh, did you spend time 
studying uh drama yeah classical theater at the university yeah. of oregon so yeah i got my degree in theater which mm-hmm. is you might as well just get a get a rock like that's a useless <laughs> i always used to say you'd, you it'd be more impressive if you brought your steering wheel into a job interview <laughs> than a theater degree because at least that person would be like how'd you get your steering wheel off yeah well it's that's a good story um yeah i i felt like um like i sort of found my people when i got in the theater department mm-hmm. and uh um and you know also you're you were in the minority in that like you're a straight guy in a mostly gay and female world like there's a lot for you there if you're (laughs) if you're you know i don't think it's the same anymore but it was then you Mm -hmm. know so i loved it i was like oh my god this is these are my people did you do well with the ladies yeah i mean yeah I mean, if I'm being honest, like, yeah, in, especially well, be. in the theater department, yeah, <laughs> totally. And the ladies were, you know, they were profoundly, you know, it was college. Everyone wanted to experiment, so, you know, I would be the, I would be the straight guy. They would use it for experiments. That's really the best way to put it, you know. So yeah, I did well in, um, um, in college. Did yeah. you grow up, up fast in terms of? Like, did you start drinking and start being sexual young? No, I mean, I, I. Well, drinking and stuff, yeah. I drank, yeah, like around 13, 14. That's pretty young. Yeah, it's pretty young. But sex didn't happen until late teens, mm-hmm. you know, like right before I went to college. Um, uh, you know, there wasn't pornography. There, like, there was, it was different than it is now. You didn't have the access to, and women weren't, I, this is just a terrible thing, but women just were not as easy <laughs> as they are now, apparently. You know, I mean, if you, if you read it, it, you know, it appears or that people are, were, were not, were, sex was a harder thing to get. It was a harder to commodity to come by mm-hmm. for everyone, whether they wanted to have it or not. Not that there weren't girls that were, weren't promiscuous and kids that had a, a younger age, but it really was like, you know, at least where I grew up, you know, girls waited or they waited till they really liked somebody or at least college, you know, college was sort of the like, well, we took college, you know, so they're, we're in their twenties, but, um, uh, yeah, so I think I grew up with that stuff kind of fast, but not compared to how it is now. What was your first career aspiration? Uh, I wanted to be a musician. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, I wanted to be... That's what... Yeah, that's what, what I wanted to be. At what age was that? That was like 19. Okay. Like, I wanted to... I didn't... I didn't nothing I was going to study at college was going to make a difference. I played rugby in high school, and we were good at... I was good at that, and I played rugby in college, and I was going for a business degree... And then I got in the theater department and then I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll act. But I still felt like music, something in the music world would be where I would end up. Did you consider majoring in music? No, because I couldn't read music, you know, so I, you know, I grew up during the punk era. So I didn't, you know, my my favorite band was The Replacement. So I just was like, fuck that. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the kind of music I wasn't going to play what the man wants you to play. No, I'm not going to play by the man's notes. (laughs) But I also wasn't in like now I'm interested in all of music where at that time I just was interested in, you know, college radio rock and, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing and drinking and, and girls. So you graduated. Uh, then what did you do? Then I moved back to San Francisco and for a few years was uh, I lived on the hate and in, in the hate Ashbury and I uh, waited tables and I tried to find work as an actor and I was miserable, super miserable. Why? Um, because I wasn't a very good actor and I don't, and that was definitely not going to be my career. And mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was going to do and I didn't want to wait tables and I had a theater degree. And then, um, my mom saw an ad for an, uh, in like a backstage magazine, uh, for, um, 
an improv group. And she was like, you should try for an improv. Didn't you teach improv in college? And I taught it like, you know, as a, as a teaching assistant. Um, and uh, so I auditioned for this improv group and I got in and Margaret Cho was in the group. And she said like the first, you know, day or the second day or second rehearsal, or whatever, she's like, you have to do stand up. You really should try stand up. You'd be great at it. She's like, because you're not listening, you're, you're not collaborating, you're, 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 and you have a humongous it. ego. It's unbelievable. You're, I'm, this, I'm actually kicking you out of the group is what <laughs> I'm doing. I'm just doing it in a nice way. But she had just started like maybe three months before. And um, so I went one night and went on an open mic. I was like 17th or 18th or 35th. I can't remember. <laughs> There's a million comics doing it. And I did well the first time I went up, and I liked it. I did mean, you I, have material that you had worked on ahead of time? Not really. You know, I had a handful of ideas that mm. I thought I was going to talk about. I wasn't really sure. I didn't really understand comedy because I hadn't seen that much of it. So I wasn't like, it wasn't like, I wasn't like one of those guys that grew up wanting to do it. Right. I sort of backed into it, you know. And then, um, but then I really liked it. I mean, I really liked it. That was exactly like joining the theater department. Once again, I was like, oh, man, these are the people I belong with, you know. And girls, <laughs> you know, um, the improv group with Margaret Cho, where was that based? San Francisco. But I mean, was there, was it at a, there was a, what was it called? There was a um, club called the Rose and Thistle and uh, it was run by this uh, poor junkie uh, kid. And um, yeah, he would let people do stand up comedy and, um, and uh, improv up there. Mm. And we were terrible. And like, if you're trying to imagine like, UCB, Amy Poehler type of improv. Imagine like the kind of improv you'd see on a cruise ship. (laughs) Like that's the level we were at. Like we were terrible. I mean, we had our moments and there were good people in the group and Margaret was fun. What was your group called? Crash and Burn, Mm. prophetically. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, I was also in a band called The New Sheridans and we played like, for lack of a better description, sort of like what what No Doubt did Mm -hmm. in the early days, sort of a power pop punk ska pop thing and what kind of horn was in the band we didn't have any horns okay. we had no horns we were like if we'd if we'd have been better that's where we would have gone you know but we um uh it's okay you had them in spirit it sounds like yeah we wore outfits and we had a big the girl singer was really our singer was a little bit more show toony than gwen mm-hmm. you know what i mean and um I think um, I would have liked you guys. I maybe I you know I thought we were pretty good. We came down here. We we recorded a single uh, that was produced by the band Red Cross, and um, uh, and it went no, nothing happened with it. And then um, uh, this is ninety seven, ninety six, ninety seven, mm-hmm. ninety ninety six, and then I got sober and decided to just stick with comedy. I decided to do the one thing I think I had an aptitude for. Uh, what made you decide to get sober? Um, well, a lot of things there was like, I mean, you know, it's always like a, a, it's, it's like an, always like an avalanche. It's always like a bunch of shits happening at once, but I had a particularly bad breakup with, um, uh, I was, I had been dating Janine Garofalo at the time and her career was really, it was like when she really was becoming Janine Garofalo mm-hmm. and, and I had a hard time with that. Um, and she had a hard time remembering I was her boyfriend and I think, <laughs> you know, cause she was, you know, and I, I adore her. We're still friends. We're still really good friends, but she, um, you know, she was, I think, she, I don't think she ever really thought of it as a relationship where I was like, I'm going to marry this girl. So we were not on the same page, like at all. Did and you guys talk about the relationship? No, not much. Okay. Janine's not a chatter. <laughs> um, Janine, it was really more like, it was like, like, she was like the dude, uh, like a hundred percent. 
like, you know, the reason that I understood and was able to write the book as well is that, you know, it happens the same way for guys. It's just it happens for guys like twice in a lifetime, <laughs> whereas with girls, it might happen repeatedly. Yes. Like with guys, it happens like twice. You get mm -hmm. your ass kicked really hard twice and then you're like, OK, I get this now. Were you coming up with excuses for her? Oh, my God. Yeah, totally. And 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 also like she had never not been clear that she just sort of wanted to maybe sleep together and not make it serious. And, you know, she was like auditioning for Jerry Maguire at that point and like you know she all every director in town was after her mm -hmm. and she just was um ha, was making cats and dogs and had just come off of um reality bites and her stand-up was becoming a big deal and she really was like culturally if you'll remember the time it'd be like if kurt cobain had had a bratty sister <laughs> it would have been janine like she yeah. was sort of the voice of generation right. x that sort of totally. slacker voice and so she was important she was an important person i mean she's still an important person but she really was a big deal at that time and it was just bigger than mm. the both of us i think you know, um, and I think part of me was also in love with that, that she was a star kind of, you know, right. I, I, I don't know, I, you know. So what were the excuses you would make up for why she wasn't as into it as you? Were you like, is it because she's so focused on her career? Yeah. And she's just, you know, like I would be OK with her version of how she wanted life to go as opposed to my version. Like I never thought about how, what made me happy. Mm -hmm. Like she's like, well, we'd never get married because I don't believe in marriage. And I'd be like, yeah, I don't believe in marriage either. And I'm like, I so believe in marriage. Like I love being I don't believe in it. Girlfriend. Yes. Where did Greg go? in that relationship right <laughs> you lost yourself i lost myself completely <laughs> um um but the great news is is that your your boyfriends don't when you have guys they don't want to talk about it that much like they'll talk about it with, with you for about a week or so and then that's like you're done <laughs> anyone who's seen swingers knows that so what uh, advice were they giving you or were they shut up oh. <laughs> dude there's other girls you know what I mean? Basically the same kind of stuff. You know, she wasn't the right person. I mean, you know, a lot of guys were like, you, did you really think that was going to work out? You know, and, um, uh, but mostly they were like, stop drinking. <laughs> so around that time, so eventually I ended up going to meetings or whatever. And I got but, sober. Sorry. Yeah. No. Stop drinking because the, they felt that the, your drinking was out of control regardless? A little bit, yeah. Or as related to this? Both. I think both okay. things. Like, and there definitely, I definitely hit an escalation point, you know, like it definitely was the like a tipping point for like, like day, heavy day drinking and, mm -hmm. you know. Did you, I mean, did you have a, it's a real 12-step uh, term, like a high bottom or did, was there like a lot of destruction? No, I would say it was like a pretty high bottom. I mean, there was destruction to my insides. I messed up my my liver pretty good, but my, um, but no, like you know, I didn't take anybody out with a car. Or, mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't living on the street or anything like that. I was living with David Cross, uh, so same thing. <laughs> um, but I was li <laughs> emotionally. Uh, yeah, but um. I just was done. I was just done. I was done being unhappy and I was done. And I knew like, I knew it was like the one thing that like, like what if I take this activity out of my routine? What would my life be like then? Like just simply pull, remove that and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And like, there were like immediate results, you know, and like within a year and a half, I had my first special and, you know, I, um, I went to the Aspen comedy festival and then eventually I, I met Amira pretty soon after that. Like it eventually, I mean, it, it never stopped showing itself as the right choice. Mm -hmm. How did you meet Amira? I threw her Janine. She brought her to a party at my house with Vince Vaughn. Amira doesn't remember meeting me. Then I ran into her at the Bumbershoot festival. She doesn't remember meeting me. And then we were getting our hair done at deluxe, 
over on um on Fairfax and uh I said, "Hey, we've met before." And she goes, "I don't remember you." I was like, "How is that possible? <laughs> this is the third time." And uh we started um she started laughing and we started chatting it up and then I invited her to come see me perform that night and she did. And then we just started you know, I, we were both dating other people at the time, but mm-hmm. we just eventually became our, our us. Were you living in LA at that point? Mm-hmm. So when I moved, to, I moved to LA in ninety, like ninety four. Okay, ninety four. So the oh, so the Janine and David Cross that was and sobriety all happened down here. It all happened here. Yeah, yeah, that all happened here. Yeah, Janine was on Saturday Night Live when I moved down here, mm-hmm. and then moved into the house that I was living in. So we were living together as well, but there were other people there. Right. Yeah. Right. Um. So, okay, doing comedy, got sober, met the woman who would become your wife. Mm -hmm. Did you know, like, at what point did you realize you wanted to marry her or that she might be the one? Uh, I would say like the, when I, I remember walking back to my car after the, after being at Deluxe and going, oh my God, that's gotta be, that's it. That's what I, that's the thing I want. Like she's like The woman who doesn't remember you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but also like she just seemed like an adult. There were adult reasons she didn't remember me. She, you know, she was she was a record executive and she had a big life and she was really together and really beautiful and really cool and smart and she was in show business but my, not my show business mm-hmm. and she didn't know any of my friends and I, I, and she had amazing stories cuz she'd been in music. So I mean, we talked about music constantly. And um uh and so I knew pretty quickly um and I you know, I told her that I loved her before she told me and all that. But I would always say, like, you don't have to. Like, when I quit dating other people, I'm like, I'm going to stop dating other people. But you don't have to. I don't care. Did but, you mean that? Yeah. I was like, I'm just, it, for me, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I'd rather just go do something with Paul Tompkins. Like, I'd rather go hang out with my friends. But mm-hmm. this is a waste. I, all I can think about is you. So I'm not going to pretend or put on a show for you that I date other people when I'm done. But you feel free. And good luck, you know. And then she went on about one or two more dates, and then that was it. She went out with a guy who made leather pants. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, you just dated a guy that makes leather pants. Like, I feel like your answer is already, you know, I'm not going to rush you, but I'm just saying. He made just, leather pants. How old were you at this point? 30. Uh, it, in my 30s, 30, Because it sounds like such a mature centered like self-actualized kind of statement to be able to say here's how I feel and it's not important to me that you respond any certain way and I think it's that that's so attractive and my husband actually sort of had a similar attitude towards me fairly early on he was like I'm going to tell people that I have a girlfriend um you know but and I was like I'm not ready to to say that I have a boyfriend yet and he was totally and fine he with said, that I didn't mean you <laughs> no, oh yeah like, yeah yeah oh, I'm so sorry right. I've got this all messed up I apologize no I have a girlfriend I was I was, <laughs> I was gonna tell you thing is, I was gonna tell you as yeah. well yeah um yeah I I appreciated that though as opposed to all the game playing that it felt like preceded it with other people I I felt there was great power in being able to say um here's this thing for you and I don't expect anything back but that's also the move that I would make with women in bars, which is you're unbelievably beautiful and I'm going to leave you alone. But just know that I think that 
And if you want me to buy you a drink, I'll happily buy you a drink. But I now I have to go. Did that work well? All the time. Did it ever not work? Oh, yeah. But rarely. <laughs> and at the very least, I'd complimented somebody and I'd gotten it out of my system. So that right. way I felt like, okay, I gave that. I, was, I made an earnest attempt. I didn't embarrass myself. I just said, you know, how can I know anything more about you than what I know from standing across the room is that you're beautiful. It would be dumb for me to tell you something else, but it's a fact. And I thought I should just remind you. <laughs> <laughs> so when your boyfriend comes back from the bathroom, you'll feel much better. About yourself. <laughs> um, okay. So doing comedy and were you already, uh, part of the sex in the city world no, at this point that happened after that okay. happened after we um so take me from like what we're talking about to when that happened well so i right before i met amir i got my uh, i shot my first special for hbo which was called mentastic and it was directed by michael patrick king mm-hmm. and then michael got the job at sex in the city around the time that i met amira and then he did one season of it with it was just him and jenny bix wrote all the episodes and then he came to me uh, in like 99 and said, I need, he said, the staff is seven women and two gay men and <laughs> we need someone to come over here and tell us what pussy tastes like. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm not even positive that's a sentence. And he was like, no, for real. Like there's nobody here who knows what a straight guy knows. And we would love it if you would come over and be the straight guy on the staff, like a couple of days a week, just come in make sure that we're doing this right, make sure that it's honest. And uh, I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And the very first day, that was exactly the question was like, well, what does it taste like? And I was like, oh, for real? Like, you weren't even, like, that wasn't even a gag. (laughs) You were like, no, that was for real. He's like, you know, we're doing this episode with Samantha and we want to describe it. And none of the uh, the girls here only have a fleeting memory from college. (laughs) So, you know, maybe you can give us a more accurate description and. I just said, well, it's, you know, it's like wine, buddy. They're all different, you know? Sometimes they're fantastic. Sometimes you wish you could put the cork back in. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's how that started, and I stayed with them through the rest of the run. And Michael was super great to me, and and um, and it was, it was in those days that they used to run credits at the end of the show, and the credits were big, so my name was always huge at the end of the show, which was like, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but there's no credits anymore, so... People would see that show, which was fast becoming a really popular show, and my name on it. Nobody really knew, you know, they'd just see the name. They didn't look to see that I was just a consultant or know what that even means. And so it brought my value up because I was mm-hmm. getting like 500 bucks a week. Like it wasn't, the pay wasn't fantastic. Right. So um, how would it work? In general, would they just ask you questions or would you pitch things? Yeah, you'd just sit in the room and then sometimes somebody would throw a question your way and sometimes you'd just speak up and sometimes you'd pitch an idea and then sometimes Michael would have very specific things he wanted to talk about and we'd talk about the arc of the season and I was allowed to say anything I wanted about anything. It didn't mm-hmm. really become specifically male stuff, but there'd be times where I'd argue points for Aiden or I would argue things for Big or I would argue things for um, uh, um like or even for carrier whatever sometimes i'd say I, that's not what happens in relationships like a lot of times you know i'd have my own just straight up opinion right um and it was killer it was a great job we talked about sex a lot so that was pretty awesome because you know you rarely get around sit around with a room full of women and talk about masturbating <laughs> you know and that was i mean like it was like fascinating i learned a lot were you surprised at how wrong women can be about straight men 
the here's what I thought was interesting when when the actual event happened. So it was like lunch, and 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 one of the writers said, "Hey, could you come read an email with me?" And I was like, "Sure." And she said, "I've been seeing this guy, and this is what he wrote me." But you know, he apologized for last night. He said the reason that he couldn't come up was that he had to work and. And do you think that's bad? And I was like, did you invite him up to have sex? And she was like, yeah. And I go, yeah, that's bad. And she was like, really? And I was like, yeah, why? Yes. Yes. I mean, if we're dating and you say we're going to have sex, that's what I want. I mean, I should want that if we're dating. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of other things I want. I mean, yes, your grandmother seems like a wildly interesting person. (laughs) I want to fuck you. (laughs) Like that was, that was always my point of view. And I was, I was surprised that that was, not clear or evident, not in a, like, I, I always want to make sure that I'm not sounding like condescending, mm. but more like out of concern because I really liked the girls that I worked with and they were all catches, you know, they were all beautiful and they were all rich and they were all smart and they were all, you know, they were writers on sex in the city. You right. Know? Um, and so I, yeah. And then the questions of like when, so when the thing happened and then Liz to who's the whole reason there is a book was like, uh, I think this is a book idea, you know, I was like, you know, my joke is like a pamphlet, maybe. <laughs> I mean, shit, today would be a tweet. <laughs> That'd be it. I mean, we we wanted to put a page inside the book that said, if you're holding the book right now, the answer's on the cover. <laughs> Go home. Get your relationship done with, you know, like yeah. move on. Um, uh, I was surprised at the like, so if he's drunk all the time, do you think that's bad? Like, yeah, well, who raised you? Like, yeah, I mean, does it, when you told her, yes, it's bad, did you get the sense that a whole bunch of people had told her it wasn't bad yes. before? Okay. Yeah. Like, he could be super busy. You know what I mean? And like, just because he doesn't want to have sex doesn't mean he doesn't like you. No. Oh, no. Why do women do this to other women? No. Even though I'm sure I've done it and been on the receiving well, end. Well, because of it. it's the kind. You don't want to hurt the person's feelings. Yeah. Right. But you realize you don't hurt their feelings when you. Like. It all depends. Like, do you want to hurt their feelings or do you want them to get hurt? Right. You know, by other people like, you you know, and all you have to do is go, look, if a guy didn't want to have sex with me, I would take that as an insult and a no. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do whatever you want. You're going to do what you want. You're going to rewrite this situation. But even though you're asking me the question, you know, the answer, you know, I mean, it's usually the guy that makes that move quicker anyway so you know just the fact that you invited him and he said no is not good right you know so then you guys did the you well you felt like it was only gonna be a pamphlet but you were able to do the book so then the show ended and liz and i didn't have any work and she said we really should try to make a book out of this and then my wife who i write books with now was also like yeah that's definitely a book and i was like how was i i'm not going <laughs> to like i didn't see how it would be a book or how we would do it and then i conceded to i would answer questions if you asked me and we could put it in that framework where mm-hmm. cuz liz was like there shouldn't even be a woman in this book it should be bought from a guy and i go no that is that's a horrible idea that guy's an asshole who thinks he can instruct women if i'm the guy that just happens to be being asked questions and i'm only responsible for my answer and i'm not like throwing out some like this is how you should be living thing then i can be responsible for just my answer Mm -hmm. and and then you can decide how you feel about the information or women can decide how they feel about the information and that turned out to be a kind of fun way to write the book did you at this point begin to think I'm a comedian, though. No, because, what am I doing? because in my mind, it would have fit in my comedy in that 
I I thought you're just oh, being like a funny guy offering opinions. Yeah, and it'd be like we a we thought it was gonna be in the humor section, and b you know our plans were like oh god get it in Urban Outfitters. Like we didn't have <laughs> lofty goals. Right. Neither of us thought this was gonna be like neither of us saw ourselves as um you know Venus and Mars. Like mm-hmm. we didn't see ourselves as John Bradshaw. Like we right. we definitely. We're having some fun. But Liz was like that when we got into the book, she's like, I think this thing is going to be much more powerful than you think. And I was like, I, you know, I maybe I don't know. I know we're having fun and I know it's writing itself really quickly. Mm-hmm. Like it came together really quickly. Like how fast? You know? I think we did it in a summer. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we did it like she came out and visited me for like two weeks and I went back to New York. So even less time, really. And then we were emailing each other. And then Amira had a lot of, of um, uh, you know, she did a lot of the shaping of it and helped me tidy up some of my answers. And, um, you know, because my writing at that point was not great, you know. Um, and uh, but, yeah, I mean, I liked having people ask me my opinion, you know, and I think that's why. So when it did come out and it and it, it like it immediately like before Oprah, they were like there was a nice review from the Washington post and a nice review from the Chicago times sometimes saying this book is actually really pretty great. And then we got the word that we were going to be on Oprah and, um, and they wanted to just ask me questions live. And I think that's where it really kind of came together because people could put a face with it and go, I mean, I I could have made some better hair choices, but, (laughs) but I think, um, but I think like people are like, oh, okay, he's not such a bad guy. He's kind of funny, you know, and he's saying this in a very loving way. It's mm-hmm. not, it's very big brotherish. It's very much like a guy who cares, but also isn't going to lie to you, you know? And Oprah was just like, you know, I mean, she literally just, it was like T-ball, you know, she just set him up and boom, I just knock him out of the park. And that Oprah, after that, I was like, what did I just do to my comedy career? Because I knew, even though it wouldn't air for another week, I knew we crushed it. Mm-hmm. Like you could just feel it in the room. Oprah came and visited us, visited visited us after the show, which she doesn't do. Right. So it was like a big deal. It was like, oh my god, you know. And within weeks, they were interested in developing a show with me and all this other stuff. Who's and the they? Oprah. Oh really? Yeah. Oh wow. And did did you do that? I didn't do it with them. I didn't do that with them. Was that they were interested in developing a talk show? Yeah. Yeah, but I decided to do it on my own because. Um, not with own. Yeah. yeah not or I with, guess she was Harpo. At that yeah. Point. Yeah. I didn't want it to, I mean, there were a lot of reasons at the time and you know, part of it is how I was being advised, but she had like a bunch of people in development and there were, and nothing was happening with them. And mm-hmm. so, you know, and it wasn't really Oprah. It was her production company, right. you know? Um, and I, and Sony just made a huge, you know, I turned everybody down for like about six months to a year. So you were getting talk show offers yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Based on the Oprah appearance, or yep. based okay, based on the Oprah appearance. Wow, yeah, wow. Without anybody really, it's it, unfortunately I hate to say it. It's like it, you can only talk about relationships so much. You know that that it, it, that's not an everyday thing, and that's what they wanted, though. Basically, everyone saw some version of that. Yeah, Liz and I started doing this book tour, and you know we would sell out like theaters of like seven hundred people, and then you know I we talk about the book and I do like a, I do like almost a stand up version of that. And then, and then, and then people would just come down and take questions. Did they want Liz as well or just you? They all wanted just me. How did Liz feel about that? Not good. 
I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, she got pushed aside. Um, and I regret some of that, too, definitely. Um, but Did it affect your relationship with her? A little bit, but she was cool about it because we were both making so much money. <laughs> you know, and it wouldn't have happened if I wasn't as good at w- what I was doing. I mean... Mm-hmm. You have to understand, I, Liz wanted to be a writer. I'd prepared right. my entire life to be on television or in front of the camera or mm-hmm. doing in front of crowds. And so, you know, I felt like, well, this is my destiny. I mean, Liz has a, there's a film coming out right now that was the second book, like her novel. Like she, she's gone she's on. She's fine. Yeah, yeah, she's done well. She's done very well. And she's an awesome person. But I just was the voice of the book. And in that was a, and that was Liz's idea. So I was sort of the monster she created anyway. We <laughs> created the Greg character of, you know, the big brother that gives help. And nobody wanted to hear from Liz, even though Liz's part of the book is awesome. Right. I mean, it's that way with my wife and I, too. Just that, that, you know, I'm the voice of being a dude that girls wanted to hear. Um, so you turned down the talk show offers. Eventually, though, you took one. But on the aforementioned Professor Blastoff, you said that if you had to do it over again, you probably would not have done a talk show? No. I wouldn't have done a talk show. I would have either just done... I don't know what I would have done. I maybe would... If I had done it again, I would have stayed... If I could do it again, I would have not taken a job with another production company and kept going on as a guest on Oprah. Mm-hmm. And just built my career that way. And just been a guest on Oprah. Because that could have probably built itself out in its own way. And our books would... It would, would have shaped the way our further books would have. Because the second book did really well, but not as well without Oprah. It's, and the second one was it's called oh, The Breakup Because it's, it's broken. broken. Yeah. And you did not have Oprah because at that point you had your. I had a deal with Sony, yeah. And Oprah didn't want you on at that point? Right. Because ostensibly now I've said I'm going to be your competition. I, I, I mean, see. Were you on the air already at that no, point? No, but I was on my way to being on the air. Right. So. And that, I mean, that wasn't, that didn't, that just made sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it didn't hurt my feelings and, you know, and I, and, um, and I don't think it hurt hers because when we put out, um, uh, it's just a, uh, fucking date two years ago, she had us teach a live class. So, you know, I think, um, but I think I would do that differently. I think I would have not, I would have not taken a talk show or if I did, I would do it and I go, I get full control. What, what did it air on? Um, the Tribune networks. Mm-hmm. So it was like syndicated and, you know. And it was called the Gregory Barrett Show. Is that right? The Greg Barrett Show. Greg Barrett yeah. Show. How mm-hmm. long was it on? One solid year. So did you enjoy the experience no. at all? No. Not at all. Certain aspects of it. I liked the clothes. Um, I liked being in TV production. I like the day to day. I love the crew. I mm-hmm. love the people. I love like having a place to go every day. Um, when we could genuinely help people, I liked it. Uh, but I like, there's certain things that I, like, I never watched daytime talk shows. So why would I do one? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like that kind of television, you know? And I think I got a lot of advice from people and I got a lot of smoke blown up my ass. And I think I allowed a lot of smoke to be blown up my ass. And I said, yeah, that sounds right. As opposed to my gut. That's like. No. And then, you know, there's certain chunks of money that you're like, how do I turn this down, even if it doesn't go well? Mm-hmm. But and the, at the end, that does make a difference. And there are there are other choices you could have made. Was it all about relationships? 
it started out that like, way. What was and the then, format? You know, then the next thing you know, we're reuniting families and you know, all the rest of that horseshit. <laughs> it was I would never could land on a format, mm-hmm. but it was sort of. Um, I wanted it to be more lifestyle-ish, like Ellen a little bit, like a cross between Ellen and Dr. Phil. Uh-huh. And they made it more, it was just Ricky Lake. Mm-hmm. It was just spiky-haired Ricky Lake. <laughs> you know. Um, you said that when it was over, like when the attention from the book was over, it was really over and a yeah bunch, a bunch of people dropped you right your yeah like i yes my quote is that when they shut the faucet off they shut the faucet <laughs> off when did that happen and why well pretty much like within a month or two of the show being canceled everything started to fall away some of it was like my manager quit because the production because going through the producing that tv show and watching it fail broke her heart and she didn't want to be a manager anymore um and she had twins and her husband had a very, you know, an excellent production company. And I think she wanted to be out. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, publishers didn't like how the second book did. And in the middle of the writing of the third one dropped us um, and wanted their money back. And it was awful. Uh, then my I had fire my agent who was an old family friend. I mean, my, my agent, my, um, my, uh, my lawyer, and then my um, book agent said something really horrible about me to another book company, and then they reported back. So then they, we let go of each other mutually. What was it, unless you don't want to say? They said that uh, something along the lines of, he's just not that India was a fluke at best, and, 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 and if Greg Barron's a writer, I'm a houseplant, something like that. Your a- your book agent said My that. My agent at ICM. Wow. Yeah. That's so stupid. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys did not yeah. continue working together. So we we wisely didn't. I got that. That relationship became really clear quickly. So, yeah. So that wow. ended. And Did you um, tell him or her that you? Her. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And did he or her deny it? Nope. No, they were super, super arrogant. I don't think they're in, I don't think they're, uh, none of the people that like fired, like a lot of the people that caused a lot of damage and hurt in our lives are no longer in the business. That's nice. So yeah, there's a little bit of that. And the fact that the book, the third book, then we self published and we got on, you know, the, on on Oprah's life class, Mm -hmm. you know, that was a little bit of indication. Right. Good. Good. So did this all happen rapidly? Um, I mean, kind of, you know, I, I still had stand up and then that was, and then that started to go horribly wrong. So it was all a weird thing. But at the same time, the internet started to come, become a force. And, and the only thing that saved my life was I started doing a podcast with my friend Dave and that like walking the room and that changed my trajectory comedy wise. And also all my comedy buddies had podcasts. So I started going on their podcasts and sort of reintroducing myself back to the world of comedy. But at some point, you became addicted to your dog's Vicodin. Yes. <laughs> so, like, right around, right around, I was having a nervous breakdown, and I, um, rather than seek the help of professionals, one Christmas Eve, I was like, I felt like suicidal, and I was, and uh, uh, and my dog had uh hydrocodone for her hips and i didn't even know what it was i just know that somebody walked by the pill bottle one day and went wow that's heavy duty <laughs> that is some heavy duty shit and i was like really 
I'm like, yeah, it's like a major painkiller. And I was like, oh, I didn't think anything of it. And, and th- that was like six months before this ever happened. And then on that particular night, I was like, maybe one of those will help, you know? And, you know, it wasn't like I wanted to party. I just wanted everything to stop. And mm-hmm. it did. It, it leveled everything out, changed the whole complexion of the of the evening, you right. know? Um, and then that just became, that became a thing. Like it was, you know, then it was like once, you know, every every couple of weeks. And then, you know, it just became constant and it was a secret because it was really hard to there hydrocodone is very hard to come down from mm. so you don't want to come down from it because it feels so bad not even that you want to stay up so you get stuck sort of in this thing of like i can't do the i can't go through the withdrawal or the come down from it so right uh yeah is it is hydrocodone vicodin is it codeine i think it's it's, vicodin. it's some kind of a yeah or is it oxy it's not oxy i don't think I don't know. You'd have to look it up. It's some kind of an opiate. Um, now, how long were you doing this? Probably, I think it, well, it started really slow. So probably about a year. And this was a secret from your wife the whole time? Everybody. Yeah. Except the dog. <laughs> the dog would be like, dude, what are you doing? Taking my stuff, dude. Uh, hydrocodone, according to the internets, is a synthesized form of codeine. Mm. So instead of being made from a poppy seed, it's made in a lab somewhere. Yeah. That's what it felt like when you'd come down, like you were coming down from a lab experiment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so then you went to rehab? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I finally confessed to everybody and before I, you know, I mean, it was, there was, it was, it was clear that it was going to, um, backfire. And so... Um, I confessed and, uh, and said I needed help and then went to rehab and, um, and did my time in there and came back and, uh, lived at my house, but not in my, uh, I lived in that we have a guest house. So, or a guest. Like, Cause your wife wouldn't let you back. She was like, yeah, yeah. It was sort of like, I had told her years ago, if I ever go off the wagon, get rid of me. Like, you know, don't, what, you know, what does that mean? Well, like, you know, like don't enable don't enable me right mm-hmm. you put it exactly right don't give in and so she was like yeah i don't trust you and uh, you're a liar i mean you I, lied if i were her i would year. feel betrayed i think she felt very betrayed super betrayed and i got that but also she didn't want me uh to be that far away from the kids mm-hmm. so um so we just lucky, luckily have a room that's attached to the garage and I lived out there and, and, uh, and worked my way back into my family, but it was nice. I mean, I, I, it's strange. I think of those times fondly because I, you know, I learned a lot from that experiment and then I, my priorities became just my kids and just my wife and just and my, I wouldn't allow the career to put me in that place again. Mm. And then I also went and saw a real doctor and was prescribed real meds which worked charm or like worked a miracle. You Are you know? still on them? Yeah. I take Wellbutrin and Zoloft. Do you, were you truly going, I mean, I've heard you describe voices it as the, going yeah, insane. Yeah, voices in the head and, um, like um, that you thought were other people. No, you my knew, own, okay. but not, I couldn't quiet them. Right. I, you know, I couldn't quiet the self hate. I couldn't quiet the paranoia. I was writing long letters to my manager and to my, into my agents and like, had you, did you ever send them? No. Had you, uh, no, no, no. I did. I, I sent a couple of them. Had you had brushes with insanity for lack of a, I feel like yeah. that's not the right word. I would say that right it, word yeah, before. I would say that like smaller versions of it my entire life and it just escalated. It just became, 
you know, it would be like something that, you know, for lack of a better description, it's like, oh, it happens once a year. It happens mm-hmm. every couple of months. It happens every month. It How old were you when it weeks. first happened? Do you know? I think I recall it like since college, probably. Mm-hmm. You know, that manic kind of like up and down and like, but I was super manic and my podcast partner was like, I think you need to see a doctor, man. You're really like, you know, but you're like, you like in those manic episodes. Like, and was the, the manicness or the mania coupled with paranoia and anger and self-loathing and so like. Yeah. And super self-centered behavior, super self-seeking behavior. And also that thing of like. When your brain's closing in on you, all you can see, all you can focus on is you because you feel like that's all you can do to keep your brain from caving in. So you're not paying attention to your daughters. Or you're not paying attention to your wife. Right. And you're so about you all the time that the people around you are like, ugh, <laughs> you know, were you going to meetings during? No, uh-uh. no, I didn't go to meetings. I didn't do I wasn't I had I had left the whole world, really. So Dave said you need to see a doctor is that what yeah, you said yeah he was like you need to get help um at a certain point you guys had a falling out right and that's why you stopped walking the room is that no right? not really like okay. no uh-uh. what happened was that um i went to australia and then i got a job in new york and uh and he was doing another podcast and and by the time i got back we both felt like the theme of the podcast which was sort of about how hilarious it was that our lives were falling apart and that our (laughs) careers were so shitty wasn't really true and wasn't really healthy. And Mm -hmm. we both kind of felt like, you know, maybe we'll revisit it every now and again, but it just seems like, you know, he started working on Marin and, uh, and I started just doing other stuff as well. Um, I got a different, like a new writing partner. And so I decided, you know, I think we'll just, you know, let's just work on our friendship. Mm hmm. Let's take some questions that people sent in over yeah. Twitter. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. <laughs> okay. David Cazares says, what show is your favorite guilty pleasure? Pretty Little Liars. I love PLL. Yeah, no, I'm down with PLL. Hard. I'm a new. I'm hard. I, I only discovered it within this last year. Mm-hmm. We had to watch all of it. Yep. Although I began to, are you caught up? Yep. I mean, yeah. I mean, until You're current. Tonight. Yeah, it's tonight. <gasps> what? Isn't it? Or is it tomorrow night? It's tomorrow night. I didn't even know about this. Why is no one? Why is everybody me? looking at me? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's either tonight or tomorrow night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really. Yeah, season six or seven yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, there were a few seasons in the middle where I was like, I can't. I it feels like a chore to be watching this. Maybe it's because I was binge watching all of it. Yep. Like I can't believe we're still trying to solve the same puzzle. Every season feels the same. It's so the same. I can't stand this, but I refuse to let this be spoiled. And I went so far out of my way to not let it be spoiled till finally I got to the end of Netflix when I thought we were going to find out who A was and we still didn't know. And then I realized, oh, there's one more season that isn't on Netflix. Right. And then, like you with the dog pills, I'm like, fuck it. And I just Googled who A was and I looked it up. I, f- I ruined it ruined it for myself. But then I still went and watched the next season. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then also, and it's... um. 
and it not everything's completely solved, but it's also uh, what happened was I was I my daughter said, "Do you want to?" She she my oldest daughter True was like, "I just started watching the show. Do you want to watch one with me?" And my internal was like, "Nope," <laughs> but I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah," because anytime my daughters ask me to do anything, I say yes because you're you know, good dad. How and how long will that last? So uh, we watched one and then I was like, let's watch another one. <laughs> and then like six later, I was like, oh, my God. And the whole family got into it. So, yeah. And it was like a like it was like a cool thing that all of us did together. And, you know, the girls have a good, pretty good sense of humor about it, but it's pretty great. And uh, Spencer's my favorite. I was going to say she's my favorite, Spencer's too. Spencer's my favorite. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Pretty Liars. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. She's my favorite, too. What if she's everyone's favorite? Every, and everyone I don't know. thinks that I, I they're think, unique I, by thinking uh, maybe. she's their fave. I think I hear a lot of people like Lucy Hale. I think a lot of okay. people like Lucy Aria. Hale. Yeah. Yeah. And uh um and I saw Emily in person at um uh the Festival Supreme, Jack Black's thing. How was that? I performed there. It was really fun. God, she's unbelievable Shay in Mitchell, person. I Unbel- yeah, unbelievable. Roger Arnold says, Did Greg use cannabis oil as part of his cancer treatment? I did, but I didn't like it. I, all the pot stuff was too like pot. Uh, mm-hmm. It was recommended, and I, I, I tried it once, and it did. The, it did help with the pain, but I was still high-ish, and I didn't like it. So, um, but you can get the oil without the effects. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, yeah, it wasn't for me. Did did you have a lot of nausea? From the chemo, I did, but they have there's things they, they have give you, dr- right? they yeah. have they have their own drugs that they give you. Uh, Tim says, ask him if he can do his gay Jamaican accent. My gay Jamaican accent, I don't know. Um, do you have one? I don't really remember that I have one. I might have like during walking the room, we would make stuff up all the time, and so like I may have one, but I never listened to my own podcast, so right. I have no idea. Okay. Yeah, we can move on. Also, I don't want to offend Jamaicans or gays with something that isn't at least completely thought out. Right. I understand. Yeah. Maybe he just thinks my regular Jamaican accent is gay. Maybe he just thinks regularly you sound like a gay Jamaican, even when you're just being yourself. And so actually you have been. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Aaron Frank says, uh, I think think you actually already kind of answered this, but what really went down with him and Dave Anthony? I miss walking the room. Yeah, it was a, it was just a creative decision to leave it as a piece. Uh, yeah. A Kimmy thing says, how in the world is he feeling? Hashtag remission. Hashtag cancer sucks. Hashtag love. That's very, very sweet. Um, I, good. I mean, I, it's, uh, I'm still, I still uh, get worn out pretty easily. Um, but for the most part, you know, I feel great. Burn Plant says, what is his favorite decade and why? My favorite decade's probably the 80s and because it's most reminiscent of the 50s, which I didn't live through. <laughs> uh, and lastly, Mike Delaney says, is David Cross himself a never nude? Is David Cross himself a never nude? No, no. David is, uh, um, I mean, comfortable without his clothes. Like, it's interesting. I never found, like, I live with him, and he usually always had clothes on. Uh, and we didn't go to the beach a lot. But whenever David's in front of the camera uh, for Mr. Show or whatever it is, he's happy to get naked, like, all the way naked. Like, when you're, like, you're not that happy that he wants to get all the way <laughs> naked. You're like, all right, David, you know. But the one thing I love about David is absolutely the most fearless performer 
truly genuinely fearless like just yeah we have to take our clothes off no problem i'm like oh man see that's the thing i feel like no one's really that maybe i'm in the minority but my sense is no one is really all that excited or clamoring for a shit ton of male nudity like i remember back when people were talking about game of thrones more there were these discussions of like why isn't there more male nudity when there's all the female nudity i'm thinking who needs to see a lot of dong i don't I mean, just by look, they're hard to shoot. I think I don't mm-hmm. think they I don't think they shoot well. I don't think they come out. You know what I mean? They're not like <laughs> they're not like like the vagina is so neat uh, and so tidy, and breasts are so kind of just beautifully simple. But a, a penis is a complicated, unattractive. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, How do you light it? Yeah, yeah. And there's only a handful Does of guys that have them. Angles? Yeah, and there's only a handful of guys that know. And it's in, right, and it's in a crevice, like mm-hmm. it's in a it's in a place that's hard to, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Right. I don't know. We. I, th- it's funny because you always hear people say things like that, and yet if the demand was there, I think it would be there. I right. Don't, because it's a that, lot of guys are willing to show it. Well, I think so. we've learned, if anything, that, that guys are not afraid to take their dicks out and send them to you on their phone. Right. I wanted to create an app that just bounces back a, um, like when you get an unwarranted one, it recognizes the picture of the dick. <laughs> you don't get it, but it bounces back a thing that says, congratulations, you've just been registered with the Los Angeles Police Department as a sex offender. I love it. Put your dick back in your pants. Like, because if you think about it, that's the only place in the world where it's okay to just send someone your dick. Whereas like if you took it out anywhere else, people would be like, well, that's against the law. Right? So yeah, it's true. weird that that seemed, because like, the idea of sending a warranted dick pic, that's fine. If somebody says, yeah, I'd like to, or somebody requests one, but I'm so surprised at how many women go, no, I didn't ask. He just sent it. He just, I just, he just sent it. And then you go, that is so bold. How you like, why lead with like, that's, it's like, I'd like to lead with rape, please. I'm going to start with rape. (laughs) Yeah. Um, on that note, let's do just me or everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? So this is where people write in with things they think or do, and they wonder, is it just me or is it everyone? And then we say whether we also think or do these things. That's good. Um, Scott Grover says, I think it's awkward when my ex-wife leaves me a voicemail and says, hi, it's me. I know. Why do you think I didn't answer? Um, is it the hi, it's me that, that's awkward? Or is it just the awkwardness of his ex-wife calling? This one's hard to weigh in on as I don't have an ex-wife. I think, I think he's just making a funny observation of, she says, hi, it's me. And he yeah. says, yeah, I know. That's, yeah. Of course, that's why you're getting voicemail. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't you, I'd be talking to you. I remember in college when, uh, back in the days of answering machines, and my roommate left a note that said, me called, because <laughs> I had a friend who called. I was like, hey, Allison, it's me. <laughs> um, okay. L to the... Oh, this is also a very specific one. Once again, I need to have a talk with the person who selects these. It's me. Uh, L to the aura says, when your tights start sliding down and you're in front of people, waiting to pull them back up is torture. Hashtag worse than a wedgie. Yes, Although a wedgie when you're in mixed company or the kind of company where you can't just deal with it right away is also toward any sort of clothing issue where things are increases or they're falling down. I, I can't stand that. 
you know, I'm going to go ahead and say, I'll just pull my tights up. You really? Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll pull my, I'll pull my tights up. Yeah, me too. Unless they oh. get caught in my sock garters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then, then you got to, you got to unhook them and all that. Yeah. Is there no move where you can pull your tights up in, no. in a couth fashion? Because a wedgie is like, you got to put your hand in the middle of your butt. No, because, I mean, if, and this wouldn't be where they're sliding, but like if the waistband were sliding down, you could adjust that. But she's talking about a whole slide that basically you need to get somewhere, you need to put your foot on something, and then you need to begin pulling up from the ankle. And it's like a lot of, t- it's like, you know the three-point turn, if you're a bad driver, that's like a 500-point turn, uh-huh. where yeah. you're just like two yeah. inches in each direction. That's what you're doing with your tights. So they're essentially melting off of you, yes. and you've got to unmelt them. You're like a yeah, dolly yeah. painting. Being a lady's complicated, isn't it's, it? It can be. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Live and learn. Scott Grover says, just mirror everyone, gets frustrated when the bottle of windshield washer fluid always has just a little left. Why can't Tank take all of it? I don't uh, fill my own windshield, windshield wiper tanks because um, I'm precious. Yeah. They they come in tanks. <laughs> I, I don't. I, just I think I've that was seen my... people do this before. Yeah, so you buy it in a gallon, but there's never a gallon sized thing receptacle that you're pouring it into. Right, and it's even an odd amount, so it's not half the container. It's who knows. It's, mm-hmm. it's probably metric, and then the manufacturers just make it up. So at some point, you're going to be left with a very weird small amount in your uh, bottle there frustration city wow i mean that does that sounds like for people who uh are not pretty ladies like us and and work on their own cars and by work on their own cars i mean refill their (laughs) own wiper fluid Uh, i think that sounds like that is uh, everybody else everyone gets it crystal says when people back into spots in a parking garage and hold up the line of people entering i want to stab them yes I we've talked about this on the show before. I never back into a spot. I think because I don't trust my backing up skills. Right. I would rather be backing up into an open space than backing up into a very like trying to thread a needle when I'm in reverse. Um, but there's pl- like at a place that you and I used to work. Mm-hmm. So many people backed into the spots. Were you a backer in? Or? I, I was a backer in or in certain spots because the logistics of it were that if to get front in and the spaces that were closer to the street, you would actually have to do a bunch of points because you couldn't just come in and turn right and go into it. You actually had to Because there were forward. trash cans right in the way. Yeah, and there was yeah. a bad angle. So it was actually less work oh, to I can see that. pull in yes. forward and then... Psh. I never did that, but I could see that. Greg, backing in? Uh, I don't have a problem with it. I'm very patient. Yeah, it doesn't bother me much. I am very, right. very patient. How great for you guys. I'll let you just do your thing. Isela says, just mirror everyone. When on the road, I try to guess the person's ethnicity based on their driving. I don't do that, you racist. But um, what I do do is I'll try to guess what the person's going to look like based on their driving. So perhaps it's the same thing. I'm just not leading with race uh, or ethnicity I mean I have two things that go through my mind they're very simple I just say phone or old phone or old mm. phone or old phone or old and when it's old phone I just ram the side of their car I just I'm like have, that's do you it. see old phone very often you don't see old phone you usually see you usually see you know it's ethnicity doesn't play as much of a part as age does and mm-hmm. I get it yeah I understand um, but uh, 
but yeah, but phone. And then the thing about it is, is that the most of the fury comes from the hypocrisy that I was also on my phone. So like I'm yeah. mad at myself for because you're driving slowly, but I was also on my phone. And then I decided to get off and you were still going slow. But that tweet, man, I'm so glad I did it. <laughs> I've tweeted while driving too. You never feel good about it. I, I mean, don't feel you- good about any of my tweets. They're awful. <laughs> I'm horrible at tweeting. I find Twitter such a challenge. I'm so fascinated by people who are good at it. I need to go back to where I called her a horrible racist. I'm sorry. You're probably not. Well, or maybe. maybe. We don't know. Jury's still out. Stan Yu says, when I see people wearing sunglasses indoors, especially at night, I try to guess their reasons, insecurity or drug use. Oh, no, I don't do that. But I, I like that. I, I do. I wear mine dark all the time. Uh, one, uh, one of the reasons is, uh, or my reason is macular degeneration, which means that you are slowly going blind and that your eyes cannot take even small amounts of light sometimes can be too much. And then you blink incessantly or your eyes water mm. or dry out depending on which kind you have. And it's just easier to keep, uh, keep them on. I also think some people have prescription sunglasses and don't carry around two pairs of glasses because that's a pain. And sometimes you're in you too. So there's three reasons. Um, but yeah. And so I try and wear the lighter of the darker lenses mm. like I am now. Right. Yeah. Because I can see your eyes. Yeah. I didn't know you have macular degeneration. That yeah. sucks. Um, yeah. How was that diagnosed? Um, I just found that I was have blinking all the time and having trouble like light sometimes would just be overbearing. And my father has it and it's hereditary. Mm. So will you? I'll die probably before I go blind. So there's an upside. (laughs) (laughs) Jason Dix says, always wondered what would happen if one were to pick the cookie dough out of cookie dough ice cream and bake it in the oven. I never thought of that, but it's brilliant. I bet it's been done. I bet if you look it up on the internet, I guarantee you someone's melted a quart. And then I bet it's made like probably not particularly good cookies. Right. Because I feel like it's made to be... In ice cream. In ice cream. Because they always tell you don't eat raw cookie dough. Because right. there's uncooked eggs in it, so right. whatever so cookie, whatever's in cookie dough ice cream. Thing. Oh, well, well done. Must be faux cookie dough, right? Or oh, as we call right. it, cookie faux. Oh, cookie faux. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Misfit Hermie says, "Want to strangle the pretentious people who talk about living quote an authentic life." I am sick of this new cliche phrase. I get sick of cliche phrases, but that one doesn't bother me. Maybe I am that pretentious asshole. I, I'm trying to be like Jack White and live a completely inauthentic life where every (laughs) single move, even every tube in my amplifier is a choice that I've made that fits a certain prescriptive, uh, notion of myself. Now understand, I absolutely worship Jack White. I'm not saying it as an insult, uh, but there's something about the idea that authenticity isn't also in inauthenticity. Right. You know, there right. Is, I don't, totally. yeah, I don't know what authenticity means other than you're not, other than you're not alive. Right. You know? Is calculated authenticity actually inauthenticity? That's right. Or would be, or would insincere, in, or sincere inauthenticity. Which yeah. is would what white stripes are. Yeah. yeah. Like I find that there's actually more revealed by Jack White than revealed by say Dan Auerbach of the black uh, keys. You know, I know more about Jack White and have a better understanding of who he is and find him to be actually more open with his with, with what he's doing because it's not he's not hard to read as mm. opposed to somebody else. So I, I think an inauthentic life is the way to go. Super inauthentic. 
<laughs> completely contrived. An and unexamined and inauthentic life. That'll be your next book. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, pro- pro- a profile of Sting. <laughs> I would argue the person who is presenting themselves as living an authentic life, but you as the viewer or listener or friend or whatever sense that there's a lot of inauthenticity there that is a super irritating person i gotta speak my truth you've othered me (laughs) like i I, like that i think everyone uh instinctually gets uh cringy around the person who is overly earnest but you can tell they're super full of shit well that's the thing it's like it's like authenticity is really easy to read Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you so it, it, so to actually put on the act of authenticity is to be completely inauthentic as opposed to like just being bizarre on purpose, but you're kind of not because everything's on purpose. You know, we all look at you know it's it's funny we judge and and we say oh that guy's just a weirdo and you know it's like well he's just making choices the way you're making choices. Your clothes are just as artificial as his. His are just bolder. You yeah. know. And what if you're what if you're just a hose bag? Mm-hmm. Then being a hose bag is your authentic life. Yeah, a douche or something. Yeah, you don't hear hose bag enough. I'm trying to bring it back. Is it working? Yeah, yeah. You and brought ho- it back oh, yeah. today. Yeah, you brought it back today. Felt it felt good too. Thank you. Yeah. And finally, Scott Hatherly says it distracts me when people say I don't ever instead of the more straightforward never, as in I don't ever do that. I think that I say I don't ever sometimes. I don't ever. I can definitely imagine saying I don't ever. Not always. I never. Never. Yeah. Never feels stronger. So maybe people say I don't ever. That's the kind of weasel way of not ever saying never. You call me a weasel. Well, a weasley hoe bag. I, I don't. I don't ever call you a weasel. <laughs> don't ever usually is like a proclamation of like I don't ever go there as as opposed to I never go there. Never go there means like. I just don't, it's just not something that crosses my path. I never go there or I never go like that, but I don't ever go there is like a purposeful, like you're going to add it's more way. negative. It's a little Deliberate, bit more negative. Yeah. It's a little bit more like, it's also to set yourself apart from whatever it is you're talking about, you mm-hmm. know? Right. That That's more like, I have a definite aversion to that thing. Right, right, right. Never yeah, like, yeah. I've never eaten that right. ice cream. Never but, right. Doesn't mean you I, won't. I Does, don't ever eat pistachio Right, right. Cream. That one never doesn't mean you won't. Never means right, you, just, you haven't, just haven't, but don't ever means like, oh boy, what, what else haven't you done? Yawn. <laughs> We've gotten to the bottom of this. Yeah, these were very firm I jamas. Know. I like yeah. Wow. Yeah. You guys, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, perhaps one of Greg's books, mm-hmm. perhaps cookie dough, yeah. ice cream. We have a new one coming out in May called How to Keep Your Marriage from Sucking. Wonderful. Yeah. Click through the banner on my website, AllisonRosen.com. The Amazon banner, that is, at AllisonRosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It helps out the show. Thank you for your Amazon support. Thank you for your PayPal support. PayPal links on the right side. Um, we have ringtones available. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. And also, touch the tushy. Touch, touch the You can get these uh, if you go to the website and click on store. You can also get them at gumroad.com slash AllisonRosen or iTunes. Also, bonus episodes available. And we have t-shirts. You need a t-shirt. Those are uh, in the store on my website as well follow me on twitter at allison rosen follow the show's twitter feed at a-r-i-y-n-b-f email us a-r-i-y-n-b-f show at gmail.com i'm on instagram at allison rosen um and oh there's something else i was gonna put in there what was it oh no i know what i was gonna say 
This is tight. Um, if you like what you're hearing, especially that little little uh, digression I just went on, subscribe. iTunes.com slash Allison Rosen. Jeff, where should we go for you? You can find me at Colonel Jeff Fox on Twitter and Facebook or my alternate inauthentic ego or it's uh, Colonel Neville Fox. And I'll be playing <laughs> keyboards in uh, Greg's ska band. <laughs> yep. And um, Greg, tell us where we should go to find you and plug the things that you would like people to know about. I just go to at Gregory um, Barrett is my Twitter feed. And that's like the hub for all, everything that I do because I tweet incessantly about what I'm doing and never a tweet. So if you like sh- plugs... Come on over. And then, um, yeah, that's it. That, that's it. I, I do a monthly, I do a show in L.A. called Bring the Rock. Uh, I'm doing one tomorrow night with um, Tom Morello and um, oh, cool. Colin Hay and Bill Burr and Chris Fairbanks. And uh, it's a monthly music comedy show, bi-monthly. And, um, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And look for Greg Barron as Flying White Falcon. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank this you. I'm so, yeah, I'm so glad we finally get to do it. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Yeah, Allison Rosen is your new best friend.